Sooner or later, Eliza Gilkinson, it's an introduction to Activist Radio. We have a couple of uh, historical stories you didn't learn in high school. We have some news items you haven't seen in the New York Times. And we have music to help you join the resistance. Activist Radio can be heard Thursdays, 8 to 9 a.m. on KBOO, and they're at 90.7 FM in Portland, Oregon. Thursdays, 11 to 12 noon WRFA, and that's 107.9 FM in Jamestown, New York. Thursdays, 5 to 6 p.m. on WVKR, 91.3 FM at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Thursdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on WBDY, and they're at 99.5 FM at the Bundy in Binghamton, New York. Sundays, 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. on WESU, and they're at 88.1 FM at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. Sundays, 4 to 5 p.m. from WIOF, and they're at 104.1 FM in Woodstock, New York. Sundays, 5 to 6 p.m. from the Progressive Radio Network. Tune in to PRN.live for that program. And finally, Mondays, 11 to 12 noon on WCAA, and they're at 107.3 FM in Albany, New York. Past programs are available as a podcast, search on Activist Radio, or you can go to Class Wars and listen to our last 10 programs, which will always be there for your enjoyment. Go to classwars.org. Our guest today is going to be Peter Dolak. He's a writer for Systemic Disorder Blog, and he's the author of It's Not Over, Learning from the Socialist Experiment. We talked today about mostly about COP28 and how big oil will eventually bring us all right down. So uh, stay tuned for that. That comes out in about half an hour. We'll be talking to Peter. Brings me the views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, its board of directors, not even its constituents. Just the views of me today, Fred, and I bring you up to date on America's hidden class wars. be louder than your screams One day our whispers will be louder than your screams One day our whispers will be louder than your screams The people's day will come Emma Goldman will sing this song for you Big Bill Haywood and Mother Jones too Psycho and Benzetti that took their lives, but we can organize. 
That's the People's Day by Otis Gibbs. It's your introduction to the first part of Activist Radio. We take a look at some historical moments that you probably didn't learn in high school. Uh, it's an important part of Activist Radio because we remember pretty much the history of social struggle. Uh, a struggle that's often left out of our corporate media. One of the worst things about our corporate media is that it leaves out uh, and mention overview, a look at the struggle against racism and warmongering. And probably the example is the coverage uh, this weekend of the March on Washington. I just don't see it in the New York Times. Typical, but uh, that's what we're talking about here when we talk about the history of social struggle. All right, we're going to go in history to January 18, 1985. The United States walked out of a world court case, even though it, the U.S. had been a member of this court since 1946. The court had charged the U.S. for being in violation of international law in its support of the Contras, a terrorist group that was attacking Nicaragua. Efforts to undermine the Sandinista government in Nicaragua had been a keystone of President Reagan's anti-communist foreign policy, a key from the, essentially the very beginning of his presidency. And here's Congressman Michael Barnes, a Democrat, uh, who was very critical of the Contras. Quote, he says he was, quote, shocked and saddened that the Reagan administration had so little confidence in its own policies that it, clo it chose not to even defend itself in the world court. But the court still heard Nicaragua's case, and in June 1986 decided against the United States, ordering it to pay reparations to Nicaragua. But the U.S., in all its arrogance, refused to pay Nicaragua for the penalty the court had decided on. Nicaragua, in fact, had put the damages of the U.S.-backed terrorism at $17 billion. It's interesting to look at what the World Court found. Uh, first of all, they, they charged the CIA, uh, especially their writings, uh, their manuals, one uh, called Psychological Guerrilla Warfare, uh, included, quote, the necessity of shooting civilians who were attempting to leave a town, unquote. And the, quote, neutralization of judges, officials, or notables after the assemblance of trial in the presence of the population, unquote. In other words, round up all the leaders um, and either shoot them or hang them uh, after a very brief trial. The manual also advised the use of, quote, professional criminals to perform unspecified jobs, unquote, like shooting politicians, doctors, teachers who were working in the countryside. And Nicaragua lost a lot of doctors, nurses, and teachers who were specifically targeted by the Contras. But the court also found that the U.S., quote, did not issue any warning or notification of the presence of the mines which had been laid in or near the ports of Nicaragua, unquote. Another violation of international law, especially in peacetime. 
In all the global terrorism database reports that the Contras carried out more than 1,300 terrorist attacks during the 1980s. And from the very first stage, the Contras received financial and military support from the United States government. In fact, the Contras were completely dependent on U.S. aid. Even after this support was banned by Congress, the Reagan administration covertly continued it. These illegal activities culminated in the Iran-Contra affair. Despite all this proof of U.S. complicity in attacking Nicaragua in the 1980s, our newspapers hardly covered it at all. When it comes to Central America, the Western media couldn't agree more about Nicaragua, and coverage is nothing but Pentagon talking points. No matter what the World Court decreed about war crimes committed against Nicaragua, its results were hidden from the U.S. citizens. Take a look at the recent campaign to get rid of Ortega in Nicaragua, calling him a dictator and an abuser of human rights. All the stories are still being written in the Pentagon. That's not really what people find when they go to Nicaragua. They find, in fact, they go to Nicaragua or Central America and discover the failings of the U.S. media. That's what they find. And will the world course decision about Israel's genocide in Gaza really make any difference? The elites in the U.S. know about war crimes. They've been committing them for the last 75 years. They know about mass murder and starving children. There's a small segment of power brokers at the top who are worse than immoral. They have no sense of right or wrong at all. They are simply amoral. Well, who does one vote for in a world like this? Crazy Trump or Genocide Joe? The two major parties are so well fed by the lobbyists in D.C., that they don't care about thousands of children starving in Gaza. Biden himself has gotten more Israel lobby money in his political career than any other U.S. politician in Washington. His lifetime total as measured by OpenSecrets.org is about $4.5 million. Such are the scoundrels that run our empire. We're going to go to a song now. This is Bruce Coburn. The album is Stealing Fire, and the song is all about Nicaragua. Let's listen to that. Submachine gun At age 15 He's a veteran 
Lied by J. Mankita. It's a lead into the next part of Activist Radio. Uh, it's an in-depth look at what we call the failings of our corporate-controlled media. We've even put these failings on a separate website, fantasylandmedia.org, where stories uh, over the last decade are posted and also keyword searchable. So it's an in-depth look, we say, of the failings of the corporate control media. Failings because all the news is made by the people in charge, the corporations, and your very own government. Our first story is from the UK. It's The Guardian. 
Quote, thousands of marchers descended on Washington, D.C. on Saturday to call for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza and to protest U.S. aid to Israel. More than three months into the Israeli offensive against Hamas that is killing 250 Palestinians per day, this according to Oxfam Charity. The protest called a march on Washington for Gaza was promoted as likely to be the largest pro-Palestinian demonstration in the U.S. since the 7 October attack on southern Israel by Hamas fighters. Oxfam said the Israeli bombardment has displaced 1.8 million of the 2.3 million Palestinians living in Gaza and turned much of the besieged territory bordering Israel the Mediterranean Sea and Egypt into rubble and dust. Saturday's protest organized by the American Muslim Task Force for Palestine and aligned groups was organized to draw attention to what is called Israel's quote crimes against humanity and articulates a position that the creation of a fully recognized Palestinian state is in the US national interest. Well this story is from course the Guardian in England. Uh, the New York Times actually didn't print this story or any story in fact about one of the largest pro-Palestinian demonstrations ever in this country at least 400,000. But it is the hubris of the New York Times that it's on full display here. On Sunday our newspaper of record headlined a story about those troublesome Indian courts making people wait for years on Monday, the headline was How Netflix Reels in Viewers with its three-word hooks, unquote. Nothing about millions rising up against U.S.-supported genocide. The New York Times is simply the empire's newspaper. Our second story is from uh, Jacobin. Less than a month before a catastrophic aircraft failure prompted the grounding of more than 150 Boeing commercial aircraft, documents were filed in federal court alleging that former employees at the company's subcontractor reportedly warned corporate officials about safety problems and were told to falsify records. One of the employees at Spirit Aero Systems, which reportedly manufactured the door plug that flew out of the Alaskan Airlines flight over Portland, Oregon, allegedly told company officials about the, quote, excessive amount of defects, according to the federal complaint, and corresponding internal corporate documents reviewed by the U.S. According to court documents, the employee told a colleague that, quote, he believed it was just a matter of time until the major defects escaped to a customer. The allegations came from a federal security lawsuit accusing Spirit of deliberately covering up systemic quality control problems, encouraging workers to undercount defects, and retaliating against those who raised safety concerns. Although the cause of Boeing's airplane failure is still unclear, some aviation experts say the allegations against Spirit are emblematic of how brand name manufacturers' practice of outsourcing aerospace constructions has led to worrisome safety issues. Well, here's another story missing from the New York Times. Along with its love of militarism, the paper has always protected the Empire's weapons makers. All the stories that the Empire sees fit to print.
Well, we have uh, our last story is from Common Dreams. Members of Congress who expressed more support for Israel during the first six weeks of its war on Gaza received 125,000 on average from pro-Israeli lobby groups and individuals during the last elections. This is the Guardian reports on last Wednesday. In contrast, lawmakers who expressed more pro-Palestinian views only received 18,000 on average from these groups. The Guardian analysis does not prove that legislators changed their views because they received donation. It also the case that pro-Israeli groups are more likely to fund campaigns run by people who express pro-Israel views. However, experts and advocates argue that the lobbying is one reason why around 82% of Congress was more supportive of Israel, while only 9% was more supportive of Palestine. Quote, one of the main reasons most members of Congress don't represent the majority of Americans who want a ceasefire, the Israeli lobby gave Congress 58 million last cycle. Only 33 members didn't receive donations. The group Justice Democrats posted in response to the analysis, quote, this dark money poisons our democracy. Amazingly, no national media would touch this story, exposing just how bought and sold our government system has become is just not considered good journalism, and most Americans think they have a free press. Well, they so obviously don't have a free press, do they? We have time for uh, a song and then for a class war's point of view. Let's go to the song first. This is uh, David Bromberg and the song is Diggin' in the Deep Blue Sea. They've been digging down in Texas since 1894. To dig a little deeper, they could always find some more. Now they got a pipeline from Iraq and Iran. <laughs> we gotta get it any way we can. This whole world is just a junkie, all strung out on gasoline. They got boats out on the ocean Digging in a deep blue sea Digging in a deep blue sea Well everybody gets nervous <laughs> When they think the well gonna run dry might half start a war just to keep up the supply. We got to have it to make near everything. From pantyhose to footballs and everything in between. 
This whole world is just a chunky. All strung out on gasoline. You know they got ships out on the ocean. Digging in the deep blue sea. the fish can't swim and the birds can't fly but we keep right on pumping because demand is high what are we gonna do about this mess we made you can't run an 18 wheel child on lemonade this whole world is just a junkie all strung out on gasoline You know they got boats out on the ocean Digging in the deep blue sea Yeah, they got boats out on the ocean Digging in the deep blue sea. All right, we're going to go to our Class Wars point of view before we go to our guest. Again, our guest is going to be Peter Dolak. He's a writer for Systemic Disorder blog and author of It's Not Over learning from the socialist experiment. And we talked today, well, about the environment, about big oil, and how the talks at COP28 uh, really will bring us all down. So that's an interesting um, interview coming up in about 15 minutes. But before we get there, we'll do a Class Wars point of view. There are events in history that reveal underlying truths about our society. The people of the United States are horrified by pictures of Gaza. Can it be that Israel killed 8,000 Palestinian children and that our country supported and paid for this genocide? Of course, it's over 8,000. It's more like 10 to 12,000 Palestinian children. The wealthy elite at the top of our supposed democracy aren't surprised at all. 
They rule the world with their high-tech bombs and killing machines. Israel is their perfect partner in crime and has done the empire's dirty work in any number of third world countries. In Gaza, two of the most powerful countries in the world are annihilating tens of thousands of people who are virtually defenseless. Well, there's a couple of lessons to be learned from this. Lesson number one, America is a killer state has been since the end of World War II. Not the citizens, of course, but their political leaders. Millions have been killed in U.S. invasions, all based on crude lies. And lesson number two, America's ruling elite are completely corrupt. They're highly paid by the major weapons makers and by Israel itself. The man who accepted the most in Israeli bribes is our very own President Biden, pulling in a lifetime haul of $4,346,000. And lesson number three, if we take to the streets, we can shake their devotion to greed and murder. We can expose them for the monsters they really are. We can throw a wrench in their vulgar political machine and lobby-driven existence. There is no major party for working people in the United States. And what we have has certainly got to go. All right, we're going to get to our guest, Peter Dolak. All right, Pete Dolak, thank you so much for being on Activist Radio today. Well, thank you for having me. That must have been an interesting thing to go to uh, COP28. There's so much written about it, uh, and there's so really many new terms that come out of it. I was going to ask you about one, the term of echocide. Has that term been around for a long time, or is that uh, just recently we started to think about, uh, you know, committing suicide through climate change. I imagine ecocide as a concept or, or as a term have been around for a good while at this point. I mean, the first in the first warnings of global warming go all the way back to the 1980s, often uh, attributed to James Hansen, the uh, NASA scientist who testified to the U.S. Congress uh, during that decade, and I think environmentals were starting to pick up on that. I think it's only maybe in the last maybe 15, 20 years where people have gotten really more serious about it, and, and uh, the, the environmentalism related to that have gotten to be more into the mainstream, where it now becomes part of the uh, general uh, general zeitgeist, if you will, uh, mm. on there. But it's it's unfortunately nothing new. This is something that's, of course, been building since the Industrial Revolution and uh, really starting to gather momentum, this environmental crisis, uh, really around the, the around World War II, the mid-20th century there. So, uh, you know, there was a time, I, I'm old enough to remember the 1970s, there was still a little bit of debate, gee, are we going to global warming? Are we in danger of a new ice age? Uh, that was about the last decade that there could have been any any doubt. I think already the scientific consensus was probably already mm -hmm. leaning toward uh, global warming. And from the 1980s on, you know, there's clearly not um, 
Clearly, there's not any doubt on this. Anybody who's old enough to remember the the weather a few decades ago uh, can readily see how much different it is. I mean, I'm here in New York City, where it essentially has not snowed in two years. And mm. while while I'm not a snow person, I'm not necessarily saddened at not having to schlock through snow. Uh, frankly, in New York City, that's just not natural. No, nope. Uh, it is amazing. Upstate, the same. We actually have. About a foot now. <laughs> That's the first time we've had that in about three years. But uh, you you write about uh, the connection between capitalism um, and uh, the end of the world. You write it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. What is the relationship between the two of them? Well, of course, that line is famously uttered first by Frederick Jameson, so I don't want to <laughs> take credit oh, for, okay. for a line. Right. That's, so. that's not mine. I'd love to take credit <laughs> for it, but it's just too well known. I could not possibly get away with, with that. Uh, well, the connection basically is, you know, why do we have all this industrialization and, and why is everything so out of control? Why do we not have any control? It's very obvious to anybody who truly wants to pay attention what's going on with our climate, what the consequences are. There are any number of scientific reports. I've written about many of them over many years uh, uh, on my blog, on Counterpunch, on Znet, elsewhere. Delaying, you know, explaining all of this, trying to do it in at least layman's language the best that I, I, I can. You know, it's not only only that the temperature is getting warmer, but we're crossing all these environmental barriers. You know, the entire environment is going going out of uh, going out of whack. To use, I, I guess, a somewhat less than scientific term. Um, so. We open our eyes. We can see what's going around. We merely observe what's going on. And I, I think most people do that. Certainly the average person uh, uh, does that. Uh, but we don't seem to have any control over it. And I, why is that? Is because, of course, uh, under the capitalist system, it's called capitalism because it's the rule of capital. It's not rule mm. of people by any stretch of the imagination there. So those who have the capital get to rule, i.e. get to make all the decisions and buy politics, etc., etc. So um, what do fossil fuel companies want to make? Well, the same as any other capitalist corporation. They want to make as much money as possible in the least amount of time. And how are they going to do that? They're going to continue to burn and extract fossil fuels. That's what they're in business for. That's what their uh, shareholders are are uh, expecting from them. And as long as they have, out, you know, uh, much more influence on it than the general public or the people do, or and certainly more than environmentalists do. Uh, things get to keep going uh, along as they as they are. So no matter how many reports come out, no matter how many times governments pledge, yes, this is not this is bad. We must do something about it. But nothing ever actually mm. happens to it. I mean, we see once again at uh, at, at COP28 just concluded, uh, right? You know, reduction targets were quote encouraged. Well, what does that mean? They're encouraged? Well, terrific. Yeah, we think it'd be a really great idea if you stopped destroying the world and, you know, maybe you could kind of think about it for us. Thanks. Have a nice day. I mean, what what is that? There's no, uh, we can make all these nice targets. We can make all the nice speeches we want, but there's there's nothing mandatory about anything that ever comes out out of all these COP meetings that happen once a year in November or December every year, and sometimes ludicrous places. A few years ago, it was in Katowice, Poland, coal country, where they literally promoted coal. You, uh, you know, here it was at the United Arab Emirates in December. You know, one of the great 
oil and gas and natural gas producers in the whole world, and the chair of the forum was the head of the state oil company. It's, it's, it, I mean, this is just such a farce. If it weren't so serious, we could laugh at it, but mm. there's just nothing funny about this. Do you think it's purposefully um, uh, inciting to hold these uh, COP meetings uh, in the major uh, fossil fuel production uh, companies? Who chooses where the next COP is COPs is going to be? Well, they, they, these are uh, an arm of the United Nations, so I'd imagine uh, somewhere in the United Nations. Uh, uh, bureaucracy that must be how it's done and you know maybe it's like the world cup maybe some company maybe some countries bid on a little bit or go in there and say you know hey mm -hmm. we'd like to do it because you know hey it's good pr right what was you go to the website for cop 28 this is very nice very cheery very well produced website you know from aesthetically snows and, and the big headline you see immediately is we united we acted we delivered <laughs> Well, yeah, but what did they deliver other than oil and gas profits and business as usual? Well, all right, that's delivering something, but it's not really what anybody who's serious about doing something about global warming and all the disasters that are yeah. gradually unfolding and are going to cascade into worse things as we go on into the, into the coming decades. Uh, that isn't anything that anybody really wants to see delivered, but for the UAE government and other governments, and I'm supposed the same with the Polish government a few years ago and all the other ones i guess it's good pr look at look how nice we are here we're trying to do something and we're setting mm. these nice targets here uh and never mind don't but don't look under the hood because there's no actual enforcement mechanism so they can make all the targets and the pledges that they want but there's no enforcement mechanisms then it's of no value sure now what is the weak point in the environmental uh, degradation. Uh, do you think it's capitalism? Should uh, the movement really expose capitalism as an agent of uh, well, ecocide or maybe speciocide? speciocide? Um, or do you think we should attack the fossil fuel companies themselves or the financial companies uh, that in your article you, you do a nice job linking the incredible investments in fossil fuels, uh, showing how that can't possibly uh, bring down fossil fuels. Um, they uh, keep bidding it up and giving trillions of dollars in uh, investments in that area. So what do you think is uh, the vulnerable target? What should uh, environmentalists uh, be attacking? I, I suppose I'd, I'd like to answer all of the above. Um, I, I mean, ultimately, we have to look at the system in which the fossil fuel companies and the banks operate, and that's, of course, the global economic system that, that we know as, as capitalism. And uh, ultimately, I, I and many other people are very convinced, and, and I think all the evidence is there if we wish to open our eyes and observe it, that we can't possibly solve this problem under the capitalist system because the capitalist system is based on growth and competition. And it doesn't matter what the personality is. Sometimes we like to look at, you know, the executive in the in the executive suite and oh what an evil person. Look they're doing bad things there. What is wrong with oh maybe we should get nicer people in in, in that executive <laughs> office. But it has nothing to do with the personality. I mean 
probably a lot of these uh, corporate bosses probably are pretty nasty, evil people. But even if some of them are probably nice people, if you were to meet them personally, I would guess some of them. And uh, But it doesn't matter because capitalist competition mandates that they do what they do. And that's the whole mm. thing. That system, the capitalist system is not controlled by anybody. That's part of the problem there. It's, 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 it's mad, endless competition. And if you're, you're going to succeed in that competition, you have to do everything you can to, to drive your opponents, your, your competitors out of business, to drive down your own costs, to increase your profits, because Wall Street demands that the profits mm. not only get big, but get bigger as, 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 you, as you go along there. And it's this mad merry-go-round that nobody can get off because if a, a boss said, you know, geez, this is, this is too much, you know, we're going we're, we're gonna to throttle down here and we're going to accept lesser profits to be better stewards and be better community-minded there. And what would happen? Wall Street would be furious. Serious. They would they would drive down their, their and bomb their stock and drive down their stock price there until until uh, you know the board of directors mm-hmm. or whoever's responsible you know kicked that CEO out of there and brought in somebody who was going to do what Wall Street and and uh, and investors expect them to do and then we're right back to business as usual. These guys don't want to commit suicide. They don't want to get booted out of the executive office. So they're not going to do that anyway. So it mm-hmm. doesn't matter. You could put your your next door neighbor who's a nice guy, put them in the executive suite office, and they're going to wind up doing the same thing because that's what mm. capitalist competition demands right. that they do. So unless we get rid of this merry-go-round, we're just going to keep going around and spinning up and up and up and, and worse and worse. Now, there's there's types of capitalism, and I, um, I was particularly interested in one type of capitalism, which means very, very short-term profits. Other capitalism that we saw probably in our U.S. history, uh, looked at the long term, actually looked at their responsibilities to the community and looked at, uh, you know, 100 years down the road. And uh, we're right on the Hudson here, uh, right next to IBM. And during the 50s, that was an example. They give tons of computers to the schools, and they talked about the long-term profitability, not the short-term um, how did it go from long term um, you know being able to to make money long term and uh turn that into uh a ter- a two or three year turnaround where you make as much money as possible do as much destruction as you possibly can and uh then then walk out so um did capitalism change and uh is this type of capitalism much more damaging than what we saw in the 1950s. Um, I'm not so sure that long-term thinking was that much. Now, maybe there were some executives at IBM who thought who thought long-term, but I mm. think the short-term mentality was always there. I mean, we had the, mm. you had the crash of 1873, we had the crash of 1929. You have all these ups and downs. So I think the short-term mentality has been there. I, I will agree with you to the extent that I think the mentality has gotten more severe and and still more short-term. And I don't think it's even two or three years that you. I think it's more like literally this quarter. Uh, I, I, one time in my life, I actually worked at, at a major financial uh, wire service for a couple of years, and, and, and you know you would get these surprises. And there was one time a major uh, technology company, a big computer maker of PCs at the time, 
uh, came in, and for the quarter, they made something like $800 million in profits for that quarter. Well, that's a fantastic sum. That must make people happy. And their stock price went down. And I thought, mm. wow, that's amazing. And I went in and I looked, and, and it turned out that the, the, in fact, not only was the, eight mil, the 800 million was bigger than the same quarter a year before. That's how Wall Street measures it this quarter to the previous year's quarter. And it was actually up on that, and it still went down. And it turned out that the rate of the increase had had declined <laughs> and that the, the analyst's predictions was actually slightly higher than $800 million. So therefore, it failed to meet expectations and they punished the company by driving that, by selling off its stock. Yeah. And this was $800 million in one quarter. And this is more than 20, this is like 25 years ago, you know, that 800 million would probably be worth well over, well north of a billion dollars just for one quarter. So that's the Wall Street mentality there. And that's mm. what really drives everything. And again, it all comes back down to competition, because if you don't do everything you can to maximize the profits and, and do everything you can to, to, to drive your competitor out of business, your competitor is going to do that to you. So if you're going to survive, that's what you have to do so you yourself can survive there. So it's, yeah. this, it's this mad competition that, that, you know, obviously a corporate titan can ride the tiger far better than, than we working people can possibly even think, dream of doing there. But even even the big corporations, even an IBM rides the tiger there, right? Because they got suppressed by Microsoft. Microsoft, in turn, you know, uh, gets suppressed by, by other people there. And uh, on, it, on it goes. There's always the next tiger to rise up and, and – uh, and to take you out, so uh, you got You got to do everything you can to keep it going. And then Wall Street acts as the whip. You know, you better deliver this quarter. You better deliver the next quarter. You better deliver the quarter after that. Or you know, we're going to punish mm -hmm. you. You get punished enough times there, and the board of directors is going to yep. remove you and put in somebody who's going to do as expected. This. Uh movement to save the environment and to decrease reliance on fossil fuels is a is a pretty young uh group of people have you noticed that uh they tend to be younger than a lot of other groups of course you know i've been around since the 60s so maybe everybody's going to seem young to me but have you have you looked at this the movement and and seen the age? It's it's a lot of colleges, uh, colleges putting pressure on their administrations to not invest in fossil fuels and not to invest in financial firms that are uh, investing in fossil fuels. Is this a young movement? The uh, environmental movement is it young? And are they, are they apt to look at other considerations like capitalism? Uh, where maybe an older generation wouldn't have looked that closely at that. Those are good questions, and I would say I make the same observation. You look at groups, the more militant groups that have sprung up, like, uh, say, Extinction Rebellion, it's a very youth-oriented one. And uh, it makes sense because, you know, uh, uh, older folks, well, it's getting bad. We'll see things get worse, but we're not going to be around long enough for things to get really catastrophic, <laughs> whereas somebody in their teens or 20s is young enough that they are going to see things get really catastrophically bad if we don't turn things around. 
on. So I think it's mm. a natural thing for young people because they're going to be the most directly impacted, even if you know when they're older. Uh, but it's 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 going to come someday, and it's it's going to be re- really really ugly, I think, for all of humanity and for a whole lot of species that aren't going to survive all all, all of this. So I think it's very natural. I think it's very healthy I, uh, that that young people are really driving it. And of course, obviously, there's a lot of old guard. Uh, groups, you have your Greenpeace and folks like that, and they're out sure. there doing what they can do. And obviously, mm. we need all generations and all people to be in on this. But a lot of movements tend to get driven by young people because, let's face it, you know, you go out to demonstrations and you see, especially if they're during the middle of the week, there you see students and you see retirees because they're not at work. They yeah. they have the time to do sure. that. All us folks yeah. in those many years or decades in between being a student, being a retiree, well, we got to show up at our job. We can't do that. So it's very <laughs> natural for yeah, retirees, I think uh, or excuse me, for students to be out there in force, and it's also natural for them uh, to be out there. And young people are much more likely to question capitalism than, than, than older folks are, because uh, capital, if you're 25 years old and still looking for a job, capitalism don't work for you. It just, it right. just doesn't. And, you know, when you don't see good prospects for yourself and you look around and you see all your friends and colleagues are mostly in the same boat, okay, it's not me. There's something much larger going on here. Mm. And, you know, you, you see occasionally, you know, you'll see a survey of, of people, say, under 30 and, you know, do you prefer socialism or capitalism? And it's usually about four 45% of each. So it's, it's pretty evenly split. So that means there's a whole lot of young people out there right. uh, and there are tens of millions who are questioning capitalism there. And I think younger people are definitely uh, looking at that too, the broader picture. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with, with going after targeting fossil fuel companies, banks, the whole, the whole infrastructure there. Uh, anyone who, who uses that strategy, I'm certainly not going to critique that in any way. But Sure. We do have to step back and look at the big, broad picture and look at the entirety of the system that they operate in. And we, mm. again, to come back to what I said at the beginning, we cannot solve this, you know, without root and branch change in our economic system. And sure. you know, we, we need a system that's built for human need and not for corporate profit. They're uh, looking back at uh, the story of big tobacco has always been interesting, uh, at least to me. Uh, because eventually people did stop smoking. Uh, tremendous amounts of people stopped smoking. And this is almost uh, all through e- education. A lot of it paid by for by, by the government. But education really drove big tobacco down, whereas uh, now people look at you if you smoke a cigarette. I mean, uh, they think you're crazy. So I wonder if the same is possible uh, through enough education that fossil fuel users will start to look around and realize how crazy they are re- are really because, you know, tobacco, you endangered yourself uh, and the people in the room with you. But with uh, fossil fuels, you're, you're endangering a whole species. So does education have a role in trying to uh, bring us back from fossil fuel extinction? 
Uh, I I think education most certainly does. It's not quite a parallel because you know we you know unless you live in a place like New York City, you've got to drive to work or drive to the supermarket mm-hmm. there. So you know education is one aspect, although it requires a lot of other things there, including you know a good mass transit system, cars that run on electricity, uh, etc. And you know to de-emphasize a lot of things there. Sure. And, you know sure. and you know as as individuals, we can certainly cut back on our power usage there, but you know, consumer power usage is only a small part of the fraction that yeah. can only go so much. So, uh, education, yes, uh, but with the with the caution that you know we can't reduce this to individual behavior, which mm-hmm. is what the fossil fuel companies and a lot of governments would would prefer to have mm-hmm. us do instead mm-hmm. of looking at the central thing there. Well, the last question. We're really out of time, uh, uh, and maybe I shouldn't ask such a big question, but. At least in this area of the country, I think all over the country, in colleges and on the streets, uh, Palestinian activism has really come alive. You know, we're getting three or four hundred people in very small little towns and cities of along, along the Hudson. Um, is this activism going to spill into other areas, like like possibly uh, environmental areas? We have. Uh, you know, tens of thousands of young people, uh, incredibly active in colleges and uh, and in the streets. Uh, can this possibly help the environmental movement? Uh, I certainly think so. Everything is ultimately connected, and that that's mm. what we need. You know, the old saying that uh, you know, there's a movement. We need a movement of movements, and that that's the way mm. we look at it. So we look at the, the connections and the commonalities among all these different movements, and not just not to elevate one over another necessarily, but to find all the connections, and that all the movements work together as one giant social movement and, and to mm. work toward the, the the greater the greater goals there. Well, Pete, something to look forward to, and I want to thank you, Pete Dolak, so much for being on Activist Radio. That was really interesting. Okay. Well, again, thank you for having me, and and, uh, folks can read me at uh, systemicdisorder.wordpress.com if they're interested. Great. All right. Bye now. All right. Bye. Well, that was Peter Dolak on how big oil runs the show. And we talked about the generations to come will be asking how the people of the world poisoned themselves and their natural environment. And COP28, along with the other COP meetings, will be the chapters of how this was ultimately sold to the American people and to the world. I think to change our destiny, we have to take to the streets. Uh, We're not successful in influencing our leaders. Uh, Both parties are still complicit. They're they're still paid off. They're still drenched with fossil fuels. And how to change that? How to demand that people leading this country do something different? I mean, we see that in Biden and the genocide in Gaza. How do we push him to call us for a ceasefire? It's not in the voting booths, I don't think, uh, because we never have anybody good to vote in. So we're always stuck. We're always stuck uh, arguing with each other who's the worst. Um, And Biden uh, certainly looks better than Trump in many ways, but 
we have to realize that he's gotten the most amount of money of anybody in Washington, D.C. from the Israel lobby, and he is leading the genocide of the Palestinian people. That's something we have to remember. Do you want to vote for a person who orchestrated a genocide and then stood by as millions, billions were given to Israel, new bombs were uh, ordered so that they could keep on slaughtering the people. Anyway, stay tuned next week. We're going to rise up because a better world is possible. Activist Radio can be heard Thursdays 5 to 6 p.m. on WVKR 91.3 FM at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Sundays 4 to 5 p.m. on WIOF 104.1 FM in Woodstock, New York. And Sundays 5 to 6 p.m. from the Progressive Radio Network PRN.FM. Past shows can be heard on ClassWars.org. Please like our Facebook page, read our Class Wars blog for commentary on today's interview. We'll be here next week at the same time to help you become part of the resistance.